It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. start out with prayer. Father, I ask that you would do something today that is beyond what any of our expectations are. Lord, as we roll out of bed in the morning and we go through our morning rhythms, we oftentimes uh, have limited expectations of what the God of the universe desires to do in our life. But I pray that we would lift our eyes up to see the grandness of our to see the holiness of our God afresh, to see the greatness of his work and his sacrifice and his love. And Lord, may it change us. May we be thoroughly altered today because we behold something. We behold Jesus in a greater measure. Lord, may today be led by you, by your Holy Spirit, and may we be in stride with you. Where you desire to take us, we desire to go. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Uh, For the different audiences that would be listening to this right now, uh, whether it's the live audience, we have a mixture. We have uh, students that are here for an advanced training, and we have students that are here for something called a story summit, which uh, if any of you are familiar with the Christian uh, worldview, why is that suddenly, uh, Christian worldview film festival, boy, uh, and the Filmmakers Guild, it's hosting a training over the, ne- over the four-day period here at the Ellerslie campus on the topic of story. Last night, by the way, which I attended, uh, was the uh, opening night for it. It was fabulous. Would that be a good way of describing it for those of us that were there? I mean, I don't know what we expected, but I think we're already reaching uh, upper rungs. Uh, Aaron Burns started out. Uh, I tell you what, the, the depth of what he was sharing was deeply impacting uh, to me. And to see the richness of the Christ life integrate into story, referring to God as the great screen uh, playwriter. I mean, it was profound. Um, Daniel, I need that last name again. Schwabauer, I know it too. Daniel Schwabauer spoke next, and I just profound and beautiful, Daniel. I just really uh, appreciated that and the words you spoke. Uh, Just the beauty of story even being related in how they delivered their message. I don't know if you picked up on that too, but just really, really a beautiful uh, tapestry that came together uh, already last night. Uh, Sorry, advanced students, for those of you that missed that. I'm just trying to rub it in a little. Uh, But but I'm expectant for where we're headed uh, today. I'm going to sort of, we're going to hijack the Daily Thunder and we're going to bring it into the Story Summit. And even though, you know, some of you could say, well, you're not really a filmmaker, Eric. Uh, I, I've dealt with that a lot when I've been around the filmmaking side. It's like, well, what am I? How, how does that work? And sort of as uh, Philip Telfer said, he looks at his, his role as more of a chaplaincy. And that, I guess that's a good way of describing it for me. The topic of story is a very significant one in my life. I mean, Leslie and I have 28 books. And so it's not that we don't understand writing and, and literature and story. It's just that, you know, whenever you call yourself an expert on something, you better be really good. So I'm not going to call myself an expert on story, and I'm not going to try and teach necessarily just on story this morning. This is more of a devotional. This is more of a Christ-focused, specifically Christ-focused, gospel-centered discussion on the topic of story. And so uh, let's 
Let's kick it off. Uh, our part in history, uh, I really like my title. I've changed it a few times. I like titles, uh, so titles are always a big deal for me. And uh, I think it's because I judged books by their cover growing up. And so the way someone enters a message, in fact, it sort of bothers me right now that Ellerslie Daily Thunder is off the screen. Uh, that's uh, that is a book by its cover. That's already bothering me about my own message. Uh, so it looks like the, uh, the projector's low. Uh, but the reason I like this, and I need to turn on my clicker, uh, is uh, actually there's supposed to be three slides. Someone was being creative and, and said, I'm going to see if there's a, no, they took it out. I had, um, I had three title slides. Someone in the back was sort of like, oh, they made, he made a mistake here. Uh, and I was going to show you something, but that's deleted now. It's our part in his, history, uh, and it was the way it was, I was supposed to start it, and then it was going to be our part in his story. And, you know, just sort of the play on words that many of you have already uh, discovered uh, in life when you're, especially with your homeschool history class, you know, it's like, oh, this is his story. But at the same time, it's, it's an amazing parallel that we actually can say our part in history because we are sharing in his story. And uh, his part in our story is typically understood as the incarnation, where the God of the universe is literally going to enter into our story, and that is, of course, the great story of his story. And I'm going to give a name for our part in his story, which is sort of tough because I don't know that there's an actual word for it, but incarnation is his part in our story. But our part in his story is incrustation. Okay, and so us entering into the hero, into his shoes, into his work on that cross by faith is actually the grand gospel message. It's not just that he came and got into our shoes. It's that he made a way for us to get into his work, into his labors. That is the great saving work. If he had just come to this earth and lived a grand life in front of us and all of us marvel at his perfection, we do not have good news. I know that sounds strange, but the good news is not just found in the fact that he came, but that he died, he was buried and resurrected, and in so doing created an avenue of exit from one story, which is very disturbing, very distressing, very depressing, into a story that is so grand that words fail to describe it. So Elvis has a quote. Uh, walk a mile in my shoes. Uh, I don't know that I want to sing it for you, but uh, the, the famous phrase of walk a mile in someone's shoes is something that probably most of us are familiar with, but it's this idea of identification. And I, I, I know I'm speaking to people, we, we know the importance of identification or identifying in story development, but what I want to tie that into is the significance of how that weaves into God's entire plan. So the fact that we observe it as storytellers, we're like, hey, this is important. We need to identify with the lead character. Is just a, a part and parcel of the way God created things. His entire story is based on this entire construct. So uh, we'll move on from Elvis. The great secret of his story. So I could have said history, uh, but I'm making it his story. I still wish we had our, our three opening subtitle lines so I could have shown you that really cool flow. But the great secret of his story. Your audience must walk a mile in the lead character's shoes. And so I don't care if it's a short thing or if it's a long thing. And as Daniel made it very clear last night, if you don't care about that character, well, then you're not going to continue on. And if you don't care about a character, I, I don't know if, if any of us can remember 
uh, poorly done movies or poorly done stories, whether it's someone reading to us their story, it's just like, I could care less uh, what's going to happen next. Try to remember if I just have anything off the top of my head. I don't have it. But I've had those moments where I'm watching a movie, and if someone, you know, the power goes out or something happens, I'm happy. I don't care. I actually don't want to watch any more of it. It is so unrelatable to my life. I cannot connect with anyone in it. So I'm going to go through, it's interesting. I, I'm missing something in this. It's sort of like I wonder if I, you know, there's supposed to be a picture in that. That's weird. Did you, is this exactly the way that I sent it over? Everything about this so far? doesn't make any sense. I almost want to just go out to my car and get my, uh, but it's not that big of a deal. It was a picture of Gilbert Blythe, okay, for those of you that, that would help you along. Uh, and so I'm going to call this the Gilbert Blythe effect, which uh, if you ever read Anne of Green Gables, Anne of Avonlea, or watched the movies, okay, Gilbert Blythe. So this is my uh, defining uh, experience in regards to story identification. And that is I, I'm watching through this movie, Anne of Green Gables and Anne of Avonlea, and it's painfully long if you're Gilbert Blythe. And so, and if you're Eric Ludy watching this movie, I'm identifying with Gilbert Blythe the whole time. And I am, what, spurned, overlooked, discarded? I mean, Anne goes after some wealthy guy who's rude as can be. I mean, why in the world, what would she see in that guy? And then finally, in the end, I'm rediscovered. And I tell you what, I'm emotionally connected to this story, surprisingly so. A guy that didn't cry growing up, right, finds myself crying when Anne goes to him with her book, you know, which is dedicated to him, and he's dying with scarlet fever. And I find myself choking up, and awkwardly, and my family's nearby, I'm trying to hold myself together. But what is taking place is something that shocked me. And that is that I could so identify with a character. I mean, I'm not going to marry Anne Shirley. I mean, this isn't my story, but why is it that I feel like it's mine? It was an incredible experience for me to recognize how that can happen. And I had a picture of Gilbert, so you could identify too and sort of feel the same thing, maybe even start choking up. When Gilbert was snubbed, I was snubbed. When Gilbert was overlooked, I was overlooked. When Gilbert was discarded, I was discarded. When Gilbert was remembered, I was remembered. So the reason I'm bringing this up, I'm bringing up a flow of, of logic because anyone who's been trained here at Ellerslie is familiar with this flow of logic. Whereas when something happens to one person, it actually is going to be imparted or imputed to someone else. This is actually part and parcel of how God created things and how the gospel works. Oh, see, now I have a picture of William Wallace in that one. I'm not sure what happened to our Gilbert Blythe picture. It's sort of a strange, eerie picture of William Wallace, but we don't really have a good one. And this one sort of matched the Gilbert one. If you'd seen it, it was similar, so I was like matching themes. Uh, but since you missed the Gilbert one, you aren't appreciating this. The William Wallace effect. So I'm not going to talk about the movie Braveheart, and I'm going to talk about a novel that I read when I was 19 years old. It was called The Scottish Chiefs. And this book so thoroughly transfixed me. And it's interesting because even though I couldn't fully relate to the main character, which was William Wallace, I, I related to his uh, understudy or his armor bearer, which is Edwin, Edwin Ruthven. Uh, and that's because 
Wallace is a picture of Christ. He's perfect in the story, which is a very interesting thing of whether or not that's a good idea in literature to ever do or in filmmaking to create a perfect character. But he's perfect. He has blonde flowing locks of hair and women faint. Uh, when, and I didn't identify with this at all. Uh, but what's interesting is I still, I cared so deeply for this character. And even though I didn't identify with him as if to say, that's me in the story, I so deeply cared about him. And I went on this journey with my savior. I'm a, I'm a Scottish rebel and I'm going on this journey with William Wallace. And I tell you what, the way he is treated, I cannot believe, oh, that, you cannot speak that way to us. You know, I, I shared in all the agonies. There is some, of, if you've ever read the, the book, it is some of the most virtuous good guys you'll ever see in, in, in all of history, in all of literature. It's the Romantic era. And some of the worst bad guys that have ever existed in all of literature. I mean, Lady Marr may be the worst, most despicable bad guy, villain ever. Ever. And I'm not exaggerating, guys. If you read it, you'll understand. You'll be like, yeah. Robbed, pillaged, betrayed, drawn and quartered. Boy, Eric had a rough go through that book. When Wallace was robbed, I was robbed. When Wallace was pillaged, I was pillaged. When Wallace was betrayed, I was betrayed. When Wallace was drawn and quartered, I was drawn and quartered. So I'm not recommending that you just go out and watch Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I remember uh, Leslie, this is like our first year of marriage. We've married 25 years come December. And so it was way back when, in the, in the olden days. And when Saving Private Ryan came out, and I just remember one of the first things I said to Leslie is, don't go see that. And yet, one of the most remarkable impact points as far as identification that I've ever experienced in my life. I was literally a soldier on the beaches of Normandy in that, in that movie. And I was being measured and tested. It's a miserable experience to go through that movie. But it's strange, the uh, effect that it had upon me as a young man. I could not speak for maybe at least an hour after it was done. I was so deeply impacted. And you could say, what, what, what was the moral? What did you learn through that? That's a, a really interesting question. What I learned is that I was not yet ready as a man, that I was not fit to go and do much because I was trembling in my seat in a theater and I could not hardly handle it, let alone being on the beaches of Normandy with bullets whizzing. And as I saw this you know, young man who was very much like me in those situations and he's crying for mama behind a rock, mommy, oh boy did I feel I identified with that guy. And I didn't want to. It was a very interesting effect. And all of these things were teaching me something, that there's this power to story that brings us in, or at least can bring us into a situation that can greatly influence our life and our development. I'm going to call this the Dan Carlin effect and uh, living in a trench in World War I. This is a podcast, so each of these is sort of a different uh, texture of story. But I don't know, have any of you uh, ever heard hardcore history at all? If, uh, okay, Daniel, oh yeah, Philip and Hudson. I know Aaron Burns is going through his second time through World War I. I've gone through, I'm, I'm almost finishing up three times. And you could say, what? And it's about 24 hours long. Where do you get time for that? Yeah, this is like uh, painting projects and everything. I am, and it's a strange thing because it's miserable. The whole thing is miserable. 
uh, to go through this. And so now he goes through a lot more than just World War I, but his World War I uh, podcast is probably his most famous. And why would you uh, listen to this, Eric, if it's miserable? It's not miserable in the fullest sense. It's extremely engaging. It's like a film for the mind. It's hard to describe what it's like, but as a man, I don't know if women would enjoy it as much. Whenever my girl, let's say it, it comes out, you know how your phone will draw in your podcast into the Bluetooth, and uh, my girls, if they're in the, turn that off. <laughs> they don't want to hear anything about war. And it's, I don't like war. And yet, there's something about this, this human tension this, that as a man, I want to be prepared to live well. I want to be prepared for, the, prepared for the greatest challenges. And there's something about this podcast that is bringing me into that and testing me. And it's like, I want to be tested. I want to go through boot camp. I want someone to yell at me. I want to be a hardier sort. And there's, I don't know what it is. So I'm going to give you a, a taste of what this guy does. This is sort of a summary. Anyone who's listened to this whole thing will recognize this. There's actual quotes in this, but it's sort of blended together into a paraphrase. So I'm paraphrasing Dan Carlin. But so what was it like for a soldier in the trenches in World War I? That's basically what the entire 24 hours is, is you're going into a trench. Dig a hole five feet deep in your backyard and go out and just sit in it. And when it rains and it turns your hole into a mud pit, try and get comfortable and go to sleep. Oh, did I mention that there are 10 dead bodies in there with you, some from as recent as 20 minutes ago, some from two years ago still struggling to stay buried beneath the earth. The stench is so rancid, that foul, so foul that it seeps deeply into everything. When you eat bread, it tastes rotten. When you drink water, it tastes like death. The horror of rotting flesh hangs about you like a fog. Oh, and did I mention the flies? They line your little backyard hole like carpet. There are millions of them, and if you kill them off, they come back just as thick the next day. They are always there, crawling on you, in your eyes, up your nose, in your mouth, on your food, and on the decaying bodies around you, constantly. Yes, and there are rats everywhere feeding on this death, figuring you to be one of the dead, nibbling on you as if you were a bit of cheese. And did I share with you that once you get into this hole, you have a severe case of dysentery, which means that your digestive system is extremely unstable, and whatever comes into your body must be expelled violently and often. And yet if you lift your head up out of this hole to go find a latrine, there are a thousand machine guns fixed on your position just waiting for you to be so stupid. If you brave all that like a good soldier, then the constant boom, blast, and bombardment of mortar shells is sure to destabilize you. They explode near your hole with unrelenting constancy, attempting to scare you into retreat all day and all night. It's as if you were tied to a wooden post while someone with a blindfold on towers over you holding a pole with a long chain dangling from it with a spike ball on its end. Every five to ten seconds, they swing this spike ball directly at you in hopes of hitting you. And whenever you whimper too loudly, they better ascertain your position and swing that spike ball closer. Welcome to World War One Trenches. So when I go through that, I, you could say, is that fun? No, and some of you are like, I understand why your daughters don't want to listen to this. At the same time, as a man, it does something to me. Like I said, I've never been a woman, so I'm not sure what it's like. But as a man, I'm, I'm identifying with that soldier. I'm so there. I, I'm really there, and I'm miserable. I'm uncomfortable, and I'm questioning myself of how I'm going to respond. And then as he goes into the stories of those that cower, those that go insane and those that rise to heroism, I'm like, oh, I, I want to be the one that rises to heroism. It has an impact on me. It's a story. That's all it is. It's a story. In this case, a true story. But a story that when relayed effectively 
brings a listener in and identifies him into a situation that he actually wasn't there. I wasn't there, but I feel like I was there. The gospel hinges on this very concept of identification. So this idea of being somewhere that you actually weren't is, is actually real. So Adam's epic failure, I mean, this is close to 6,000 years ago. Adam, a key player in this grand drama known as history, is going to have an epic meltdown. And what's interesting is, according to scriptures, we share in that meltdown. We share in that epic failure. We identify with his misery. And so to explain the world in which we live, we need to understand, in a sense, it's like a genetics lesson. Just like an acorn possesses in its bosom billions of oak trees, so does Adam, in his very seed, in his very life, possess us. We're there. We're there when Adam eats of that fruit, when he rebels and he does the very thing that God said, the day in which you do it, you will surely die. Who's there? We are. We're identifying in Adam, and this is our great problem. We actually are in this story, whether we want to be or not. We read about Genesis, uh, the Genesis account of Eve, you know, being baited and tempted, and then Adam falling to pieces. We always sort of look at it like, Adam, what in the world are you doing? Not even an argument. And we just look at it as some story way out there, but God wants to bring us into it. And the gospel hinges upon us recognizing that we were there. We need to recognize that when he sinned, all sinned. You see, this sin, this behavior, this rebellion passed along to us all. We are in Adam. So by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. There's a lot of different ways that it's written, but that's one simple way. When Adam blew it, we blew it. When Adam died, we died. When Adam came under judgment, we came under judgment. So just as an enunciation of this, it's fascinating when, when in the writer of Hebrews is discussing the value of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Okay, well, that's a big word there. But, and he makes this argument of talking about how Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. We're like, oh, what does that have to do with anything? He said, and Levi who is a descendant of Abraham, right, was in Abraham when he paid tithes. And Levi could say, I did not pay tithes to him. And yet the Bible is arguing the opposite. It seems to show the very idea that I'm bringing up, which is identification, that our forefathers, actually their, their works, what they are doing, their behaviors, we are sharing in them. So even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. What a strange statement. It's like saying, yeah, you ate a forbidden fruit through Adam and Eve. It's like, what? I did not. Well, according to scripture, you did. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What a fascinating statement. So the term in scripture is in Adam. And so if you hang around Ellisley, you hear me ask the question, what is your position? And so then people will bark back, in Christ. Well, it's very, it's very purposeful because you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. The Bible is divided on this exact hinge point. You see, if you remain in Adam, I always put the first over here, the first position. You must be born again. And if you're not born again, well, then you're still in Adam, which means you're still under Adam's judgment. But God has made a way in and through Christ 
for us to escape Adam's judgment by faith in a second. So the Bible is always first and seconds. And so you have Old Testament, New Testament. I mean, just right there. In the New Testament, Paul's going to say flesh, spirit, law, grace. But all throughout the Bible, you're going to see it. Cain and Abel, which offering does he accept? The second. Ishmael, Isaac, which child does he honor? Second. Uh, Esau, Jacob, both are twins, right? Esau comes out first. Jacob comes out second. Which one ends up in the lineage of the Messiah? Which one is of the seed? First king of Israel, Saul. Second king, David. Which one's a man after his own heart? It's a second. And so you see this super theme over all of scripture because even, even in the small ways, Moses, Joshua. Moses can't take them into the land of promise. Joshua, Yeshua, the same name as Jesus, can. You see John the Baptist, Jesus. You see, in all these situations, you're going to see twos that are going to be revealed. And the first condition that we identify, and we all identify in the first that's what's amazing about the storyline. There is a weakness that we all have, but then there is a rescue that is going to take place, but that rescue comes in the second. In Adam, all die. So the term is in Christ. Paul is going to use this term throughout the New Testament all the time. And he uses, he has this other term that he uses, which can bring some confusion, that is Christ in you. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul, you need to get everything straight here. Is it, which way is it? It's both. You see, the key to Christianity is that we must believe in Christ and therefore we are clothed in his work on the cross. It's called righteousness. His righteousness clothes us. And as a result, we are fit now in Christ to enter into the heavenly realms and to enter into a throne room of grace where he sits enthroned in, at, the, at the right hand of the Father. But we are not fit unless we are clothed. But when we are clothed, we are brought near to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus says, ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. You see, then the very life of God Almighty is intended to dwell within us so that we are in Christ in order that Christ can actually live inside of us. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So the term incarnate is uh, a critical word for our understanding of Christian doctrine but it means to clothe with flesh, to embody in flesh. So it's Jesus entering our story. And when Jesus enters our story, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic idea that is very difficult for us even to comprehend because even in our limited human idea, we have, an, we have this idea that Jesus starts in the womb of Mary. It's really hard for us to think beyond that, but to recognize that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. This one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, is going to humble himself and condescend to become a fetus is almost too much for us to comprehend. The fact that he would enter into our story, that he would enter into our skin, that he would enter into our circumstances, that he would actually become accursed for us is beyond what most of us can comprehend. And I don't know if really any of us as storytellers even know how to bring it out. It is like it falls into a, a sector of our comprehension that is very difficult to wrap our mind around. We get it intellectually, but we stagger when it comes to really fully uh, getting it. So here's our, here's our word, incristate. I'm adding a little pronunciation help for you too because I made up the word. But it's to clothe with Christ, to enter into his work. 
So this is what I would say the essence of the great storyteller is doing. He is giving us a story. It's his story. And what's amazing is he's inviting us into it. And when we believe in Christ Jesus, by faith, we exit Adam and we exit that ruin, that distress, that, uh, that terror, that condemnation, and we enter into Christ. Whereas we shared in Adam's work in the Garden of Eden, his failure, his, his sin, now, by faith, we share in Christ's victory. We actually share in his work. The same way you could say, hey, it's unfair, it's unjust that I would be penalized for Adam's work. Well, it is unfair and unjust in um, almost every thought and court of law inside of our own brains that we should share in Christ's victory. So just as unfair as it seems that, hey, well, I'm innocent. Well, guess what? He's sharing everything that he's accomplished with us. And that's the great storyline of the gospel. Did you know that you are unworthy and in and of yourself, you cannot produce what is necessary to gain access into his heavenly realms? You are deserving of a curse. You are under a just penalty of law. You are deserving of condemnation. And yet, Jesus is not. And so by faith, you're able to find clothing, this incristate or this incrustation. You are actually entering into his work on the cross, and as a result, you are spared. So to clothe with Christ, to enter his work. So one of my favorite illustrations of this that I've used often is the airplane. So an airplane is able to accomplish something that a human can't. It can defy the law of gravity. And what's amazing about an airplane, too, is it's a passenger vehicle. So it's a great picture of Christ in so many regards. But I could stare at a plane, and I could appreciate a plane, I could sing a worship song to a plane, and not participate in the power and the virtue of that plane. That, that plane offers something to me, and the way that I receive its virtue and its strength is when I enter inside of it and trust it. You see, when I, on the outside, I could look at it and attempt to mimic it. And when it goes down the runway, I could run next to it and flap my arms. And yet, that does not mean that the virtue and the strength and the power of that plane is imparted to me. The way that I receive what that plane has to give is I must exit my own self-effort. And I must enter into his working. It's called grace. See, grace is his working. He worked 2,000 years ago, and I must enter into that. He also works today, and he works tomorrow. You see, we must learn to live according to a different pattern that isn't in our own human ability. We must learn to enter into the lead character and let him do the working for us. So the airplane, as a passenger, you go where the plane goes. So that's as long as you're a passenger. You see, as long as you're staring at him, you could even come up to the side and kiss it. You could, you know, hold on to the top. You must be inside of it. You must put your confidence in the fact that it alone can fly. And when you do, you recognize that it's built for passengers. It's built to hold you. It's built to carry you somewhere. But the principle of a plane is where it goes, you go. And that's why I really love the illustration of a plane because it's very awkward if I were to say, if the plane is going to London, England, where would you go? And if you said, I think I'll go to Miami. You can't go to Miami if you're in that plane. If you're in the plane, you're gonna go where he goes. So if he's going to Seoul, South Korea, I don't care if it's a long distance. You're going to Seoul, South Korea. Once you get on board that plane, that's why they're always warning you, are you sure you're on the right plane? Because we're going to such and such a location. 
Because if you're on the wrong plane, you're going to the wrong destination. What if it's going all the way to Perth, Australia? That's a long way, and I don't know that one plane can actually go that far on one tank of gas, but, you know, hey, uh, if it's going to Perth, Australia, you're going to Perth, Australia. What if it's going to the right hand of the Most High God? You follow me? You see, this is an important idea for the gospel. It's called identification. In fact, throughout Christian history, it's called the identification doctrines. That we must, by faith, enter into his work. Do you recognize that there is no other vehicle of transportation that can get you from here to there? I do. Then you need to get on board. You see, the gospel is an appeal to say, as long as you remain in Adam, you die. But there is a vehicle and the door is open. And if you by faith will repent of living here and turn and enter the living God, the work of Christ on that cross, buckle in, trust. You don't need to push up the ceiling of the plane and try and hold it up. You don't need to flap your arms and try and make it. You need to rest in his ability. And when you rest in his ability, you actually do go from here to there. This is called impossibility, by the way, guys. This is impossible living. This is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a form of living that you cannot produce. And as long as you flap your arms and Adam, you will not produce it. But by faith, when you enter into Christ and rest in him and say, God, you do this working. And his Holy Spirit comes in and works inside of you. He begins to produce things that you on your own never could. It's good news. You see, he has created a means by which we can identify in his heroic labors. And just as much as I could feel Gilbert Blythe's plight, just as much as I could feel when he was remembered by Anne and when everything is, is actually coming together in the end and I can share in both the pains and the victory, how much more so this is happening in the gospel where I'm able to share in his sufferings. I'm able to identify in his working, and in so doing, I'm sharing in his triumph, in his victory over the grave. And if death no longer has any hold over him, guess what? I'm in him. So therefore, death has no more hold over me. I am in Christ Jesus. So reasoning like a Christian, what is your position in Christ? Where he goes, you go. So where did he go? Well, the way to the Father, from the cross to the grave, from the grave into the sky. Sounds a little like a song, doesn't it? You see, this is the way to the Father. It's, it, it has a few stopovers. It wasn't a direct flight. There were a few layovers on the grand journey. You see, Jesus knew what he needed to accomplish to get us, as the audience, if you want to say it, even though we know that we're the, the bride, we are the redeemed, we are the ones that he has laid down his life for, he is desiring to get us to the Father. This is his great end. So that plane is headed in that direction, but to do that, he needs to take us to the cross. Then he needs to be buried. Then that stone needs to roll away. And this is not just for him. Remember, he's wanting us, he's taking us. He already was at the right hand of the Father. He came down to bring us home with him. So as a result, he is coming here to behave as an Adam, as a priest, as a high priest for a people. This is God's way, is that this whole idea of identification, which is what a high priest does, he identifies and stands in proxy for the people. And so what Jesus does is he comes down and becomes a high priest for a people. 
So the first stop, the cross. It's amazing once you begin to see this. This is so profound. And some of you may already know this, but I want you to recognize it in regards to story. That literally the leading man is bringing us into the story. He's bringing us into his shoes, into his boots. He's bringing us into his skin. And when he goes to that cross, which is a must stop over for this trip, we want a direct flight straight to the right hand of the Father, but God says, no, we're going to need a few layovers here. I need to go to that cross, and I need to take you with me. So by faith, even though this was 2,000 years ago, when we believe in Christ, we go to that cross. Paul says something that is a little tricky for our brains to comprehend. Most of us have just grown up with it, so we never think about it, but I am crucified with Christ. Wait a minute, Paul, were you one of the thieves up there? I mean, I know there were two thieves up there that were crucified with Christ, but no, no. No, he, by identification, by faith in Christ, he is brought into Christ's death. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Do you remember this first? You see, how do you deal with the first? What is God's solution? He says, I want you to identify and believe in me. And when you do, your old life is crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? The word baptized can trip some of us here because it, the word means to be put in or immersed in something. Okay, and it's not just talking about water uh, here. It is talking about by faith you are being put in to Christ. Do you not know that when you were put into Christ, when you were immersed in Christ, when you were clothed in Christ, that you were clothed in his death? Don't you realize that when you came to Christ, you actually entered into his working? So when he went and died on that cross, his death is now shared with you and your old man is crucified? Remember that old man that you can't seem to deal with? That one part of your life that is like no matter how hard you discipline yourself, no matter how hard you, you know, rigorously you're your early morning wake-up routine is, your prayer time is, you cannot seem to deal with him. God says, I have a solution. Enter into me. I deal with him. You see, God is the one who defeats our problem. He is the grand hero. We are the, the princess in the high tower that needs to be rescued. I am crucified with Christ. The second stop, see, one of the ways that I'll always say it is, old Eric is dead. How? By faith in Christ. You see, old Eric no longer rules this, this house. God does in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my new Lord and master. How? By faith. And that's what's critical here is the second stop is the grave. You see, you have this old carcass, this old Eric. And so that needs to be put under. And so not only does he die, but he is buried and it is put out of sight. The symbol of burial is it's no longer visible. So I am buried with him, but there's more that happens in that grave. That stone is rolled away. And I am resurrected into newness of life in the resurrection of Christ. So it's an amazing thing because a lot of us think that we need to whip up the death of our old man. We need to somehow work up in our own Adam's strength the ability to overcome and to have new life. When in actuality, both of them are gained by being in Christ, by faith. I'm in Christ, therefore my old man is crucified. And therefore I have newness of life in Christ Jesus. It's a fact, guys. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. So we are buried with him by being put in or immersed into his death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so 
also should we walk in newness of life. For if we be planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How, how is this happening? It's happening through identification. You, by faith, are entering into Christ, and now you're going where he's going. You're sharing in his victory. He died. So you get to share in that. I am crucified with Christ. This isn't up to me to crucify my old man. This is his work. Thank you, Lord. It's not for me to bury and put out of sight my old life. It's his working that accomplishes that. So I rest by faith in the fact that he accomplishes that. And I can't raise myself to newness of life. I mean, I don't know how many of you have been able to pull that stunt off in your soul. I am raised to newness of life by faith in Christ. It's not based on a feeling. It's based on a fact. This is actually what happens by faith. The third stop, it's a pretty uh, incredible stop, guys, the right hand of the Father. And Paul says the most amazing, exquisite, befuddling thing, I am seated in heavenly places in Christ. Whoa, 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 Paul. As you're writing it, your body is right here. What do you mean you're seated in heavenly places? This is one of the most important understanding points for us as Christians to realize this identification is so critical in the gospel. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when I say, what is your position? And someone says, I'm in Christ. Well, you see how important that is. You see, if you're on that plane, you go where that plane goes. So yes, I recognize that your body is right here. But do you recognize that his body is up there? And so when you believe in Jesus, that spirit man dimension of who you are, that new creature is actually brought to life in Christ and rises with them, ascends with them and enters with them. And that part of you is untouchable. That's why nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, you are secured. Your body, however, is down here and you have work to do, but you can't do it in your own strength. His body there, your body here. Your spirit in him, his spirit in you. Hudson Taylor called it the exchange life. How do you live this life? By being in Christ and by Christ being in us via his Holy Spirit. And now suddenly, we're secure in him. We have access to all the throne of grace. All the power of the Almighty is made available to us and we have access to the Father. How do we pray? We pray in the name. We're in Christ. Uh, Father? <laughs> I'm, I'm rather close to you here. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to pray in, in Christ's name because that's like where I'm located. And we have access. And all the promises of God in him are yes. And in him, amen. If you're in him. If you're in Adam, no. If you're in Christ, yes and amen. And so as a result, this idea of sharing in his work, you don't deserve to be there. And yet you're brought in, not based on your merits, based on his merits. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things here on, that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when he is crucified, our old man is crucified. Remember, this is the Gilbert Blythe pattern I, I gave you in the very beginning. When he dies, our old man dies. When he is buried, our old life is buried. When he is resurrected, our new life springs forth. When he ascends, we ascend in him. When he takes his seat, we are seated in him. It's an amazing reality. All things are underneath his feet. We see that in Ephesians 1. And we know that that's true for him. We know that he's seated up there, but we don't know that we are. I don't even know that most of us know that we're in his death or that we're in his burial and we're in his resurrection. We just look at it sort of like this historical event. We have not been brought in. There's a story that brings you in and there's a story that just causes you to be a casual observer on the outside. The gospel is meant to be one that brings us in. God wrote a story with the intention of drawing us into the lead character's work. It's called the fellowship of his sufferings. Because not only do we share in his past work, but now we share and identify in his name. We bear his name. And so we suffer in these bodies. In a real way, we're part of this story and we're carrying his name. The, the beauty of this is so remarkable, even though we have a tendency to back away. I understand. I don't really want to be in a trench in World War I. And if you ask me, I don't want to be in a prison cell in the New Covenant. I don't really want to be falsely accused and have to leap for joy. At the same time, everything that I need for this life, in this body, has been supplied me. Why? Because I identified in Christ Jesus' work 2,000 years ago. And as a result, I have been brought into the throne room of grace where everything that is required for life and godliness has been made available to a guy named Eric Ludi. That's amazing. And you can say, what did you do to earn this, Eric? That's what's hard to explain because it wasn't me that did it. It was him. And I am able to share in his reward because he loves me, because he desires me. I mean, befuddling extraordinary, exhilarating. The word good stinks to describe it. Good news, come on. We need better words than that. Good? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, as a result of this, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a great summation of the gospel right there. The shared reward. I'm a Broncos fan. I, I try not to be. I, I Literally, it's a discipline of my life that I try not to watch the Broncos. Okay, And I haven't. Like this whole season, I still know what's going on. It's a disaster area, which is good. That's why I'm glad that I'm not watching. Okay, Even though I still, I, it's weird, I still feel the pangs of it. It's like, oh boy. No, I don't care. I don't care. But once you start caring for a team, you care for a team. It's weird. And so I know someone, what was it? Uh, someone was here from Houston. Uh, yes, Barbara. Uh, Houston. So the Houston Astros just lost. And you, you, there's just certain a pang uh, that is, is there because you care about the team. Now, when your team wins, it's funny, but you share in their reward. You do in a certain regard, even though you, you have your moments where you're laying there going, I actually did nothing. Uh, and yet there's a difference because in the victory parade, you don't see me on top of the, you know, the truck you know, waving at the crowd. No one's applauding me, right? But in the, the kingdom of heaven, it's interesting because Jesus brings us in to his reward. 
So we don't get Super Bowl rings if the Broncos win. We don't get, you know, a big fat paycheck for it. We don't get the reward, but in the kingdom of heaven, there's a distinction between it. We're actually like legally grafted in to the family. We're like brought into the team. Like, hey, I, I get to share in this. This is amazing. So one of my favorite pictures for that is Hudson shoveling the driveway with daddy. We have this big driveway, and this is before I had a snowblower. Uh, and it, I mean, it was one of those big storms. And you know where you have to literally carve into the snow and take layer one off to the side? So Hudson was going to come out there, and once we finished the driveway, we were going to get hot chocolate. So Hudson was, oh, I don't know, three, four, maybe four or five, I don't know, somewhere in the younger range. And he had a little miniature shovel that mimicked daddy's. So I had a red shovel, he had a red shovel, but his was like miniature. So it was really cute, right? It was when, when one of those points, you know, where a Hallmark commercial would be made out of it. And <clears throat> so I'm out there and he's, he's coming out and he's ready. He picks up the snow and throws it up in the air and it lands right where I just shoveled. I'm like, hey buddy, we wanna throw it off to the side. And so he makes a few messes and then he gets cold or he gets tired and he goes inside. And so I'm like, okay, bud, uh, come out again and spend some time with daddy. And so, oh, he does. He comes out maybe a couple times throughout this journey of me shoveling this massive driveway. And at the end, guess who's out there with me? Hudson is. And so we get the final shovel full off to the side, and I'm like, we did it. All right, go in and tell Mama that we finished it, and we're ready for hot chocolate. He goes racing into the house, and he's like, Mama, 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 Daddy and I shoveled the driveway. Now, it's funny because Daddy doesn't correct him. Hey, he didn't actually do anything. I did all the work. Daddy doesn't say that because Daddy desires Hudson to be a part of it. I desire him to share in the victory of shoveling the looty driveway. And isn't it an amazing thought to think that Jesus wants to not just bring us into the story, but he wants to have us be a part of the celebration and have us share in his victory on the cross, share in his victory over the grave, and share in his triumphant position in all of his inheritance for all time and all eternity. He wants us to share in it. Oh, what a storyteller we have. The good news, we don't get what we deserve. Well, we could say it, we don't get what Adam deserves. We get what Christ deserves. That is so hard to swallow. But may the Holy Spirit freshly administer the grace so that we can see it this morning. What do you deserve? That's not good. You don't even like to go there. What does Christ deserve? Oh, he deserves, he deserves everything. He, he did it. He, he won the victory. He wants to share that with you. You get what Christ deserves not what you deserve. Praise God for the master storyteller that has brought us into his story. Father, I just ask that you would lead us uh, today as we navigate forward and understand and unpacking the beauty, the power, the profundity of storytelling your way. Lord, that you would receive the glory and honor that is due your name. Lord, raise us up to tell your story and to tell it well. We love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. 
Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.